Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.14, Beatrice, A Long Retirement. I hope that you all enjoyed Movie Night. It was a ton of fun to make, especially since it allowed me to share the podcasting experience with my other half. We've got some amazing feedback, including from both of our mothers, and so we'll definitely be doing that in the future again. But for now, we're back to our main story. In our last episode proper, we saw Beatrice get married, have a bunch of kids, but have her independence curtailed by her work that of being a full-time companion and secretary to her mother. We saw her husband attempt to break those shackles through service in the army, but that ending in tragedy with his death from malaria while on campaign in West Africa. Today, we will finish off the story of Victoria's youngest daughter. But before we get going, I'd like to thank my newest patrons, Ashley and Jane. This podcast relies on the support of my amazing patrons, and I can't thank you all enough. If you'd like to join Ashley and Jane in supporting the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. A big difference between the way that Beatrice and Victoria dealt with their respective husbands' deaths was how they managed its effects on their children. Victoria had completely overwhelmed them, indeed the entire country, with her overpowering grief. Beatrice was determined not to make that mistake. But it was hard. We should be in no doubt about that. She wrote that, quote, I try to be bright and cheerful for the dear children's sake and not let my sorrow weigh upon their young lives but the heart is very sore sometimes. 
She suffered from mood swings, raging at Liko at one moment for his recklessness in leaving for war and dying and leaving her alone, while at the next reading religious books or discussing mundane household items. She took to taking long bike rides in full funereal garb, and kept a kind of shrine to him at Osborne, with photographs of him above his sword and his helmets. She was 38 years old, only a few years younger than her mother had been when Albert had died. Now she too would live a long life of widowhood. Quickly gone were the theatrical entertainments and anything else that had brightened Victoria's court since Lico arrived. Everything became intensely sombre and quiet again. There was a very real sense shared amongst everyone around her that Beatrice's life was over. All that she had left was her mother and, to a lesser extent, her children. Mary of Tech, one of the Queen's granddaughters-in-law and a future British Queen, wrote to her brother, quote, Poor Aunt Beatrice. It is awful for her. Her whole life ruined. One's heart bleeds for her in fearful sorrow. What will the Queen and she do now? Those two poor women quite alone? It's too sad and depressing to think of it. This added to the real pervading sense around the court that both of them saw nothing in which they could seek pleasure in at the present, nor anything to look forward to in the future. Ennui was the order of the day. But Beatrice wasn't able to waif around, because there was still a lot of work to be done. Despite her advancing years and waning health, the Queen had lost nothing of her work ethic in correspondence or in dealing with official papers. She was, though, suffering from severe cataracts, and so the burden of writing and reading official papers increasingly fell on Beatrice once her period of mourning had ended. Together with her sister Helena and the Queen's personal secretary, they would have to open the mountain of letters Victoria received every day, summarise them to the Queen, and then take dictation as to the response. Beatrice also had to read the newspapers to her mother every day, as well as the more confidential cabinet papers. More than in any other time, she was the gatekeeper, and politicians quickly found that they now had to deal with two royals rather than just one. Indeed, Bertie, the Prince of Wales and heir to the throne, was intensely frustrated that his little sister knew far more about affairs of state than he did. This position did give her a measure of power, and, as one might imagine, this frustrated others no end. Victoria's private secretary complained that, quote, the most absurd mistakes occur. Imagine Princess Beatrice trying to explain our policy in the East. I may write along praisey, but they are often not read to Her Majesty, as Princess Beatrice is in a hurry to develop a photograph or wants to paint a flower for the bazaar, when her sole means of reading dispatches, praisey, debates, etc. lies with Princess Beatrice. It's simply hopeless. One imagines that he might have had fewer objections if it had been a prince exercising this power rather than a princess, though. Such has always been the case with women in power. The simple fact is, though, that Beatrice didn't have much real interest in exercising this power that had fallen into her hands. Indeed, the only real positions in which she took any interest were the ones that had transferred from Lico to her. Lico's old battalion was renamed the Princess Beatrice's Isle of Wight Rifles, a name which stuck until it disbanded in 1967. The C transferred to her nephew, the future George V, but after his death in 1936, she took that title for herself as well. 
She also became governor of the Isle of Wight after Lico's death, holding that title for nearly 50 years. She loved the island, far more than she had ever liked Balmoral, and while the job was almost entirely ceremonial with few duties or responsibilities, she loved it all the same. As Beatrice's duties grew ever more arduous and intense, this of course led her to spend even less time with her young family, and this lack of attention began to show. Drino, her eldest, was dispatched to boarding school, where he struggled to keep up and began to misbehave badly. Beatrice described her daughter, Victoria Eugenie, as having a, quote, very difficult nature, and Leopold's haemophilia impacted his ability to enjoy childhood. Morris didn't offer many difficulties around this time, at the turn of the 20th century, but then again he was still young. Beatrice blamed everyone and anything other than herself for this, from her children's governesses to their basic attitude. But it seems more likely that they simply wanted for parental attention. Their father was dead, and their mother was more focused on their grandmother's needs than their own. It would, though, be unfair to judge her too harshly for this. For working mothers, there is always that push-pull between their work and their children, a delicate yet vital balance that needs to be struck. And it seems that Beatrice didn't quite get the balance right. The first 13 months of the 20th century were devastating for Beatrice's family. In July 1900, her brother Alfred died of throat cancer. Then, later that year, Beatrice went to Germany to visit her sister Vicky, who she had heard was sick. When she arrived, she found this to be a gross understatement. The Dowager Empress of Germany was in fact dying of cancer, but she swore Beatrice to secrecy. She didn't want her to worry her ailing mother. When she returned to Britain, she found a Victoria that was fading fast. On New Year's Day, the Queen wrote in her diary that, quote, Another year begins, and I am feeling so weak and so unwell that I enter upon it badly. As the days went by, she became confused, not recognising members of her family. Everyone recognised the end and gathered to her side at Usborne, and together they comforted the Queen in her final hours. On the 22nd of January, 1901, Victoria... Queen of the United Kingdom and a quarter of the rest of the globe, died. She had reigned for 63 years. There were few alive that remembered a Britain not ruled by her. But now they had to confront that reality. The Queen was dead. Long live the King. The whole nation fell into mourning. There was a very real sense of being rudderless. The writer Arthur Benson summed it up by saying, quote, It is like a roof being off a house to think of an England queenless. For Beatrice, of course, the loss was more profound than for anyone else. She had more or less devoted her entire life to the mother's service. She had put that relationship first, prioritising it over that with her husband and children. And that is before you consider the simple grief that a daughter has for a deceased mother. Now that part of her life was at an end. She received countless letters of condolence, and in her replies, you get a very real sense that she had lost her sense of purpose. Indeed, in one of them, she wrote, quote, It is indeed a calamity that has fallen upon the whole empire, and to us, her children, you may imagine what the grief is. I, 
who hardly ever been separated from my dear mother, can hardly realise what life will be like without her, who was the centre of everything. In another, she wrote, quote, No one knows what the daily missing of that tender care and love is to me, coming as it does on top of that other overwhelming loss, so that my heart is indeed left utterly desolate. If it were not for the dear children, for whom I have alone to live now, I do not know how I should have the courage of struggling on. Beatrice was named as the executor of Victoria's will, alongside her brother Arthur, as well as the keeper of the privy purse. You may notice that Bertie, who was now of course King Edward VII, was not named as an executor. Victoria played favourites, even in death. While Beatrice was not the sole executor, she did take responsibility for being her mother's literary executor, taking possession of all her papers and journals. She claimed that Victoria bequeathed them all to her, and while it didn't appear to be written anywhere officially, no one raised too many objections. Beatrice didn't intend for these volumes to be simply packed away and stored in some dusty archive never to be seen again. Nor were they destroyed, like some documents from the time were, such as the Journal of John Brown. No, Beatrice had something else in mind. She wanted to publish them. But she didn't intend to publish them as they were. Nor did she plan a simple piece of editorial censorship, retaining the originals and simply crossing out the bits she didn't like or thought a bit embarrassing. No, Beatrice had a far more labour-intensive, far more historically destructive plan in mind. She was going to rewrite them. Now, I think in general I have given Beatrice a fairly positive portrayal, but right now I'm about to slam her because she's about to spend the rest of her life ruining history. Okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm pretty mad, so I'll explain why. Throughout this whole season, I have been quoting liberally from Victoria's journals. They're an absolutely amazing resource to have when studying this period. She wrote in it almost every day, and she was astonishingly honest in it. She offers an unparalleled window into the lives of the royal family and is pretty unfiltered with her views and opinions. But we don't have everything that she wrote, and that is entirely down to Beatrice. Everything that we have, aside from some sections that have been quoted by Sir Theodore Martin in his Life of Prince Albert from 1861, comes from Beatrice's pen. She transcribed them all. Well, not them all. Only the bits that she wanted to keep. As for the originals, they were burned. Burned, I tell you! See, I told you this part made me mad. Now, in her defence, she did seem to have kept the great majority of it. This wasn't some hatchet job where she rewrote the whole thing, painting everything she liked in the best light. I mean, you've heard the quotes... Victoria doesn't come across well in a lot of what survived in Beatrice's copies. Due to the fact that we don't have the originals, it's hard to know for sure what Beatrice changed or removed. But we do have some things to compare them to. We have Sir Theodore Martin's work, as I've already said, but we also have Victoria's vast correspondence with Vicky, as well as other correspondence that escaped Beatrice's censorship. What we find when we compare these letters to the journals is more of a difference in tone rather than content. Victoria's Katia, far more forceful in her views and emotions in these letters, 
and given that her journal was her own personal record, one can only imagine that she would have been even more cutting and vicious in that. The fact that Victoria is milder in Beatrice's copy certainly suggests that the princess's red pen was hard at work. In terms of how much she removed? Well, we don't know, but it's thought that as much as a third of the journal's original content did not survive in Beatrice's copy. And, yes, I'm still hopping mad about that. The best thing that one can say about her work on the journals was that she took to her task with great dedication. This project took up the next 30 years of her life, and she filled up 111 notebooks worth of content. These books currently reside in the Royal Archives, but you can read them all online, and you totally should, as they're truly amazing to see and look at. Not as amazing to look at as the originals would have been, of course, but maybe you'll get over it faster than I will. Okay, I think it's time to take a quick break while I calm down. Victoria's death had not just left Beatrice without a job, aside from her editorial side hustle, it also left her homeless. All of her other siblings had been given residences after they had gotten married and left home. But of course Beatrice had never left Victoria's side. Those places that she did call home, Balmoral, Osborne and Windsor, they all became property of the crown. A few months after becoming king, Bertie, which I'll continue to call him in spite of his new regnal name, because that's what his family all called him, gathered his surviving sisters, Helena, Louise and Beatrice to Osborne, to discuss his plans for the estate. Victoria's will had left all her surviving children an equal share, but Beatrice thought that she may be given possession of it. She had far more connection with the island than any other. She was its governor, and her husband was buried in its soil. Yet, that wasn't the generally held view. Indeed, their arguments became so heated that they were forced to speak in German so as to keep their family quarrel from the servants. Bertie's decision was that the estate should be given to the nation, making it a college for Royal Naval Cadets and an officer's convalescence home. All Beatrice and Louise were left was a cottage each on the estate. Beatrice's principal home therefore transferred to Kensington Palace, and while she made some improvements to the cottage at Osborne, it proved too expensive to run, and so, in 1921, she sold it. She instead took up some apartments on Carisbrook Castle on the island, but the Isle of Wight would never again be her main home. Those days had died with Queen Victoria. But that all said, this did mark a big milestone for Beatrice. She had, finally, for the first time, a place to call her own home, and a life to call her own. Indeed, one could think of it as being the start of a very long retirement. Free from having to spend every moment at her mother's side, she delighted in being able to travel and be the master of her own schedule. But it wasn't simple wanderlust that drove her abroad. It was for her health. One of the places that she particularly enjoyed going to was North Africa, where she found the heat helped with her rheumatism. Her trips to European spas no longer had the desired effect, and so she often went with her children on long winter trips to places like Tangiers and Cairo. 
But despite these being ostensibly health visits, she still took in the sights and culture. A trip that particularly stands out was an eight-month trip that she and the children spent in Egypt between 1903 and 1904. There, she visited all the main sites in the capital, before riding camels in the desert, seeing the Sphinx, travelling down the Nile by boat, and then going to the Sudan to visit the spot where General Gordon had fallen in the siege of Khartoum. While Victoria was alive, there was no way that she could have taken a trip this long and this exotic. But now she could, for now she was free. Indeed, she and the children enjoyed this trip so much that she took on the position of patron to the new Institute of Archaeology at the University of Liverpool. Speaking of her children, Drino followed many of his relatives into the Royal Navy after school, but then transferred to the army in 1909, receiving a commission in the Grenadier Guards. His sister, Victoria Eugenie, took on the role of Beatrice's companion, and accompanied her on many of her civic events, presenting prizes, opening public buildings, that sort of thing. However, Beatrice never saw for her daughter the life that she had had, that of her mother's carer, and was keen to see her married, and married well. Now we're going to cover Victoria Eugenie's life in more detail later on in the series, so I won't go into detail. All I will say is that in 1906, after quite a bit of diplomatic wrangling, she married the King of Spain, and left for the continent. Beatrice's haemophiliac son Leopold, perhaps surprisingly, followed his brother into the army, enlisting in the Isle of Wife Rifles before transferring into the King's Royal Rifle Corps. This was entirely at his own wish, and with the lobbying of Beatrice. He, of course, could never see actual fighting due to his condition. He served behind the lines as an aide-de-camp, but he did serve, which was very important to him, and something that Beatrice had made happen. And so did Maurice, who also joined up and served in the King's Royal Rifle Corps. Beatrice's sons all knew that, despite their sister's highly advantageous marriage, they were unlikely to be able to marry well, as they had little money, and thanks to their father, little status. Perhaps they wanted to make a name for themselves. But I think it was a true sense of duty and patriotism that propelled them. But this of course all meant that when war broke out in 1914, they were due to be sent into harm's way. Now, this isn't a military history podcast, so I certainly won't be getting into detail on how the First World War broke out or how it proceeded. There will be more detail on the conflict in other episodes, but this isn't the place. While Beatrice and her family were involved in the war, and profoundly affected by it, they aren't all that important in the grand scheme of things. Certainly when compared to some of her nieces and nephews, such as Kaiser Wilhelm or Tsarina Alex. Beatrice spent the war mostly at Kensington Palace, desperately worried about her sons and unable to visit her daughter because of the conflict. Like so many women during the war, she volunteered at a hospital, hers being a small private hospital in Mayfair. She went there every day and became so associated with it that it was renamed in her honour as the Princess Henry of Battenberg Hospital for Officers. Unlike Alice's hospital, however, it doesn't survive today, but it was a vital resource for wounded officers during the First World War. Among other duties, she also served as the president of the Isle of Wight Red Cross. 
Another effect of the war was a renaming of the whole family. In 1917, wishing to distance his family from their German ancestry, Beatrice's nephew, King George V, changed the name of the family house from Saxe-Coburg and Gotha to Windsor. He also asked all his relatives to anglicise any of their German names and titles that sounded too German. This, of course, included Beatrice, who was officially known as Princess Henry of Battenberg, and her children too went by that surname. Following the name changes, she went by Her Royal Highness the Princess Beatrice. Her children took on a new surname, Mountbatten, a name with which I'm sure most of you are very familiar. It is not known if Beatrice mourned the loss of her husband's title, but the First World War cost her something far, far more precious. On the 27th of October 1917, at Zonnebeek near Ypres in Belgium, her son Maurice led an assault on the German lines. He was hit by an explosive shell, dying instantly. He was only 23 years old. This was Beatrice's worst fear, repeated once more. Yet another man that she loved lost to war. She wrote to her friend, quote, You can imagine how this great sorrow has reopened the old wound. But I tried to think of father and son reunited, having both left such a bright example behind them. In another letter, she wrote, quote, It is one of those great losses one can never get over, and it is so terribly hard to sit quietly and resignedly, realising that one's dear child, who is like a ray of sunshine in the house, will never be amongst us again in this world. In the midst of all, I have much to be thankful for, in that he died a noble soldier's death and without suffering, and I have two dear sons still spared to me, when so many poor mothers have lost their one and only one. Of course, the Battle of Ypres went on regardless of her suffering, and she was deeply upset that her son's final resting place was being ripped apart by artillery fire. At Christmas 1917, she wrote, quote, All these festive days have been particularly trying. One cannot help one's thoughts going back to that lonely little soldier's grave in a foreign country, and to that bright little life cut off so early. Following the war, the Ypres League was set up to commemorate the lives of the quarter of a million men who had died around that one town. Beatrice was one of its patrons, and went there regularly right up to the 1930s, laying a wreath and remembering her lost child. Her other sons did survive the war, but in Leopold's case, not by long. After the war ended, he was discharged from the army and went back to live with his mother. However, he fell ill in 1922, while Beatrice was on holiday in Sicily, dying soon after. This meant that, save her parents and her brothers, she had not been present at the deathbeds of any of her family. Not her husband, not her sisters Vicky and Alice, nor her two sons. She had been present, though, for the death of her eldest brother, King Edward VII, his death and the subsequent accession of her nephew, George V, bent a downgrade from being the king's sister to being the king's aunt. When combined with the loss of her sons, this all meant that Beatrice pretty much retired from public life. She continued to work on her mother's journals and other projects, but she was largely forgotten, lost amongst all the younger, more exciting royals. When she did appear in public, it was usually on Remembrance Sunday, 
the day when all of Britain and the Commonwealth stops to remember those lost in war. Now that we're into the 20th century, we actually have some film, sadly there's no sound, of Beatrice laying the most enormous wreath at the cenotaph. I've put it in the show notes if you'd like to take a look. I've also put in there some other film that I've managed to find of her, including one of her in a cracking hat visiting some girl guides in Bath, and of her opening the Victory Circus at Olympia. Beatrice's health continued to deteriorate in the late 1920s onwards, meaning that she was cooped up in bed for long periods and spent more time abroad. Her rheumatism became ever more painful, and she also suffered from respiratory problems. In January 1931, she suffered a fall at Kensington Palace and broke two burns in her left arm. And shortly after that, she developed bronchitis. Suffice it to say, she was not a well woman as she entered her twilight years. But, then again, she was living on while so many around her didn't make it. The 1920s and 30s saw the deaths of many in her family, including her sister Helena and her husband, as well as the spouses of her siblings Arthur, Bertie and Leopold. Her nephew George V died in 1936, leading to the brief reign of Edward VIII and the start of that of George VI. On her 80th birthday, in 1937, the people of the Isle of Wight paid special tribute to her with a gift. She had long admired an organ that was said to have been played by Charles I's daughter, Princess Elizabeth, in the 17th century. The islanders raised the sum of £400 to buy it from its owner and presented it to Beatrice at a special ceremony at Carisbrook Castle. Highly touched, Beatrice accepted the gift in person, with newspapers reporting that she was, quote, obviously delighted. This was a wonderful day for Beatrice. Her health was good, and she was basking in the love of the people of her beloved island. But the late 1930s saw a further deterioration in her health. By the spring of 1939, she was too sick even to visit her sister Louise, who too was sick, even though they were living in the same palace. She wrote to her sister, quote, I can assure you I am thinking of you morning, noon and night, and felt it terribly not being able to go over and see you. But my tiresome bronchial asthma has been very troublesome of late, I suppose owing to the cold winds, and I am at times so breathless I can hardly talk, and the least exertion brings it on. I am so grieved that your foot and ankle cause you so much pain, can thoroughly sympathise with you, as mine are much the same. Of course, 1939 was the year that World War II broke out. But though the war was a worldwide catastrophe, it didn't have a huge effect on the elderly princess. That said, she was forced to move out of her home in 1940 because the area was being occupied by Canadian troops preparing to defend Britain from a potential Nazi invasion. She didn't move back to London, though, German bombers were rather ruining the place, instead settling at Bantridge Park near Balcombe in West Sussex. It was just outside the defence area and was warm and comfortable enough for her needs. And it was there that she finished her latest book. Like her previous one, it was a translation, but this one was close to heart. Her great-grandmother, Augusta of Saxe-Coburg-Saarfeld, had written a diary between 1806 and 1821, that covered, amongst other things, 
the Napoleonic Wars, and the marriage of Augusta's daughter to Beatrice's grandfather, the Duke of Kent. Of her reasoning for choosing this book, Beatrice wrote, quote, The curious similarity between the days of the Napoleonic Wars and of our own times has led me to think that this diary might appeal to some readers interested in the period. Her publisher agreed, and the book was released in June 1941 under the title In Napoleon Days, though delayed a little because the printing press had been taken over by the Ministry of Aircraft. It was well received by the press and sold its entire print run. Not bad for an author writing her third book half a century after her second. This, though, would definitely be her last work. By now her pain was relentless, leaving her effectively bedridden. By 1942, her last remaining sibling, Arthur, died, meaning that she was the last of Queen Victoria's children left alive. But that said, this didn't mean that she lay about and did nothing. She was her mother's daughter, after all. And indeed, there is a letter from November 1943 that shows she was keeping well abreast of news of the war and appointments to the leadership of the Isle of Wight. But her time was most definitely drawing to a close. And on the 26th of October, 1944, Princess Beatrice died at the age of 87. She was laid to rest initially at St George's Chapel, Windsor, the place of her funeral. But that was not where she wanted to be buried. Shortly after the end of World War II, her wish was granted, and she was moved to St Mildred's on the Isle of Wight. And there she still lies, alongside her husband. One month before that, 226 RAF Lancaster and 14 Mosquito bombers took off from bases in England armed with incendiary bombs. Their target was the historic centre of Darmstadt, which was still largely made up of wooden houses. The resulting fire was so catastrophic that the whole city centre was destroyed, along with the surrounding districts. The city was then finished off by an American raid five months later. Half of the city's inhabitants were left homeless, and at least 12,500 were dead. It's not known if Beatrice knew of the destruction of Darmstadt, but if she had, she would likely have been devastated. If it was not for its ruling family, her sister Alice would never have settled there after her marriage to Louis. She would never have had a daughter at whose wedding Beatrice would meet the love of her life, the man who had liberated her from a grey, servile life at service of her mother. Darmstadt had given her so much, and the timing of its darkest hour seems to me particularly poignant. Beatrice's legacy is one of contradictions. She was the shyest and meekest of Victoria's children, one that shunned the spotlight, and yet because of her constant proximity to the Queen, she's one of the best known of her children. She's remembered as being shackled to Victoria's side, a grieving widow's constant companion, and yet she fell in love and had one of the most loving marriages of any of Victoria's children. She was a survivor while all around her fell. She was constantly ill, suffering since her late twenties, yet battled through it and survived everyone and was a prodigious worker all her life. One cannot talk of her legacy without constant mention of her mother, but she is notable and even remarkable in her own right. 
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>